0: Let's go ahead and, uh, and get into the next chapter of Philippians. Uh, my name is Joey Sedlock. I am a member here at Sulphur Community Church, and um, I have the privilege today of continuing our study in the book of Philippians. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Those were the verses read earlier uh, by Miss Natalie. And uh, that's where we're really going to be camping out today. It's only two verses, uh, which means we're, we have the opportunity to go uh, pretty in-depth on them, right? Talk about kind of uh, what they mean, what, what the text around them means, and how exactly that applies to our life. So let's we have a lot to discuss. Um, the reason why we preach through books, line by line, verse by verse, is so that we don't avoid texts like the text that we have today, a text that would say, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And what in the world does that mean? You know, uh, That's a text that, that could just be easily avoided. It's a tough question, and uh, we'll see what the implications of that questions are today. So let's go ahead and pray and get started. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, Lord, and we are thankful. We're thankful for communion, uh, for, for your call to unity, Lord, for your work to establish unity among us through your Son, Lord, we're thankful for uh, your word, even as tough as it may be sometimes, as as challenging as it may be sometimes, Lord. It is as honey on our lips. It is sweet, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you are with us today, that you move among us today, that we don't see us as inviting you into our midst, but you as inviting us into yours. Lord, I know you have a word to speak. I pray that they, you speak that uh, through me. Oh Lord, and I pray that people have have ears to hear and open hearts. Lord, I love you. I praise you. I pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Okay, so in uh in Philippians chapter two, we've we've heard a good bit from Blake last week already, and, and Paul's gonna continue kind of in that same vein of thought and before we really get started with our text today i do kind of want to zoom out a little bit and remind us that when the philippians got this letter from paul two thousand years ago they didn't read a couple verses and then break for a week and then read a couple verses and break for a week they read the whole letter so they got to hear they got to hear paul's extended thoughts all at one time and then they got to discuss the book as a whole. And they didn't have chapters and verses and divisions. They just heard the full line of reasoning, the full line of thought. And I want to kind of remind us of that fact today and see kind of where we've been and where Paul has taken us. If we go back a few weeks to uh, verse one, chapter 27, Paul has this, this banner teaching where he says, live out your life worthy, uh, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, and what we discussed there was kind of a, a 2019 translation of that would be: live out your citizenship of heaven, live out your your heavenly citizenship. And as, as Blake brought up just a few moments ago, what the, what that means is let your let your vertical relationship with the Lord determine your horizontal relationship with one another. And, and when we preached that, I said for the next 20-some-odd verses, which include our verses today, that banner teaching is going to inform them. So Paul is going to be laying out what it is to live out your heavenly salvation. And the first thing was those who are living a life worthy of the gospel are unified even in the midst of suffering. Because we've got to think about suffering properly, right? As an opportunity, as a good thing, as a gift from God. And Blake reminded us last week that to live your life worthy uh, of the gospel is to serve one another and to be humble and have that humility, pour yourself out as Christ has poured himself out. And in our text today, what we're going to see is to live your life worthy of the gospel is to work zealously because God works powerfully before you. That's what we're going to see today. And as we, we kind of get into our text, I want to I set up an illustration. I'll be honest with you. I took this straight from a pastor who's way better at preaching than I am because I couldn't think of a better one, and I just feel like i got to disclose that to you. But let's, let's open this thing up with a little bit of an illustration. Let's say you have a 15-year-old daughter, and, and, and you make your daughter a promise. You tell her, if you get dressed and you go to this, this concert... You will be able to meet your favorite uh, artist, whoever that may be, your favorite band, your favorite recording artist, whoever it is. You'll be able to meet them. You'll be able to, to share a meal with them, to get to know them. And to your daughter, that's a big deal. They really want to meet this person, and that's a big promise of something to come in the future. But what comes out of that promise is is uh, an encouragement or, or a command to what? To get dressed and go to the concert. Because that's, that's what it is. If you get dressed and go, then this promise is, is, is here for you. All you need to do is you need to go. You need to put in the work, get dressed, and go. Now here's the thing. We have a promise and we have a command to get to work, but there's still questions that are there for the 15-year-old little girl, right? How am I going to get there? I don't have a driver's license. I'm not old enough to drive. This is, this is a problem. The promise is sweet, and I can put in the work, but it doesn't really make sense of how we're going to get to the ultimate end, right? It doesn't, it, there's still some puzzle pieces missing. Also, I don't have a ticket to the concert. They're not going to just let me in again. I, I, I like the promise and, and I can put into work, but I'm a little bit discouraged because I don't see how this thing can actually come to fruition. And that's when you as a parent say, guess what? I'm gonna provide that means. I'm gonna take you to the concert and I'm gonna pick you back up. And I bought you a ticket. There is the power that will then motivate the work. I will go. I will get dressed. Because someone will take me to this concert, someone will come pick me up, someone will provide for me a ticket, someone has put in the work beforehand to allow the promise to come true. So we have a promise, we have work that is commanded, and then we have the power to bring the promise to fruition. And I want you to think about that. Because at each point in what we discuss today, we're going to replace that scenario with a 15 year old girl with our real lives and the powerful work of God. And so in verse 12, we're going to start off. It says, therefore. We're going to go ahead and stop there. We're going to take this one word at a time. It's going to take us hours to work through these. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. But it says, therefore. And when we see the word therefore in Scripture, what do we ask ourselves? What is it there for? There we go, talking to me, I like it. And so what that does is that immediately points us to what came before, because Paul is concluding a previous thought. Now, we're just getting verses by verses, right? But the, but the early church, they would have gotten this all at once. And so if we look at what Blake preached last week, starting in verse 9, the first word we see is, therefore. Okay, we got to ask ourselves, what is that there for, right? Oh, everybody's like, I'm on it now. Ask me again. I got it. <laughs> right? So we have to go back a little bit further, and we're going to follow this full thought all the way through to what we are today. And if we go back to verse 5, we see kind of the beginnings of this thought where Paul, Paul spent the first few, few verses saying, hey, Uh, We we need you to be humble, right? We need you to not think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less and and, and put other people's interests before your own. And in verse 5, we have, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we have that kind of beginning of the thought where this is, this is the fuel for our humility, right? Because Christ has done this, and he, is, he has become a man, and not even a king, but just like a regular dude, and not even like a regular dude, but a servant, a servant who died and died a horrible death. He says, Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's our promise. There's our promise. Our promise isn't meeting some guy at a concert, our promise is sharing in the inheritance, in the exaltation of Jesus Christ as we are made one with him. So there's our promise. It's a promise of future glory, and it is a lofty promise. So Paul in our text today says, therefore, with the example, with the promise, therefore, he's going to say, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But before we get to that quite in our text, Paul wants to remind the Philippians of two things. And what Paul's going to do is Paul's going to be a good biblical counselor here. He's not going to be the guy who lobs truth bombs over the wall and walks away and wonder why everything ended in disaster. He's going to come around the Philippians before he, before he speaks into their situation He's going to love them and he's going to remind them that they are known. And so he says, therefore, my beloved, we're going to stop right there. I know we're, we're we're deep into it. He says, therefore, my beloved. And what Paul is doing here is he is reminding the Philippians of his affections for them. And he already did this in uh, chapter one, verse eight, where he says, I yearn to be with you with the affections. Of Christ Jesus, right? So he's saying, my beloved, my dear beloved friends, remember my affections for you. And he continues, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, okay? He's he's reminding them of history that they have together. And he's not reminding them of their obedience to him, Paul. He's reminding them of their obedience to Christ, because in all of Pauline theology, faith in Christ is always ultimately expressed as obedience to Christ. And he's reminding them of them, hey, I love you. I know you. We have walked together. We have been partners in this gospel from day one. So he says, as you have always obeyed, so now Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Here, what Paul is saying is, is I am far away from you. We know this. We know that he's locked up, right? He's in chains in Rome. He is geographically far away from the but he yearns to be with them. And what he is saying is, my physical presence with you is not the foundation of your obedience. Remember that I am far away, and I expect you all the more to be obedient to Jesus, even though I'm not there. And then he tells him, be obedient in what? And he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He actually says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a scary verse. That's a scary verse, right? But instead of of go get dressed for the concert, we have work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, right? We have this promise. And through this working out of our salvation with fear and trembling, that's supposed to be the work that we do to get us to the power, which we haven't gotten to yet, right? And so we're kind of rebuilding our illustration. We have work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And before we get into what in the world does that mean, let's discuss real quick what we know for sure it doesn't mean. I mean, here's, here's a little, little class on, on, uh, on Bible interpretation. A fancy word for that is hermeneutic. Feel free to throw that out. You know, it's a $2 word. And so what we have here is when we have two verses that are addressing the same topic, we interpret the one that is ambiguous or unclear through the one that is clear. So we're talking about salvation and front, the, the face value of this verse says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What that means is I need to be scared of God and it is up to me to accomplish my salvation. That's what this verse would lead me to believe without any context or without any other ver- verses to view this through. But what we know is we know that we already have Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And what that reads is... For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. That's a crystal clear, probably the clearest iteration of how Paul views salvation and how the Bible teaches salvation that we have. So, what we know is unless we have uncovered a contradiction in the Bible, in which case it would be best for us to simply toss them in the trash and continue on with our lives, what we know is work out your own salvation does not mean that it is up to you to put the work in to accomplish your salvation because we know it is a gift that has been given us by grace through faith. Well, it doesn't answer the question of what does it mean then, but we get to strip away and look deeper as to... Uh, what it does mean. And so when we look at this, this verb that, we, that is translated from the Greek as work out, a more, a more literal translation would be to, to carry out and to reinforce what, we, what we've already seen in Ephesians. Uh, the leading Philippian scholar, a guy who has devoted his life to both knowing Greek the language that the book was written in, and also Philippians specifically, what he says about this verse as he studied it, its use in Scripture, and its use in other literature written at the time, is that in no way can this be stretched to mean to work at your salvation in such a way where it's up to you to accomplish it. Another translation of the same verse would use the word carry out or continue working, where it says continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence. And what's interesting is to get, to get at the heart of what this may mean or what this, what this does mean is the New Living Translation, which is a translation that seeks to interpret idea for idea instead of providing a word-for-word translation of the Greek. It reads like this. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. You see the interpretive step that they've taken there. Work hard... To show the results of your salvation, the results of God's work, obeying him. Now, where are they getting this obeying from? Because if you look in the Greek, in this specific verse, it doesn't say obey, but earlier, right, therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed. And so what Paul is talking about in these verses to work out your salvation is obedience. The topic is not your right standing before God. The topic is your obedience to the gospel of Christ. And so what he says is, is, is it's up to you, right, to work hard to show the results of your salvation, to be obedient to Christ. This working out or this this carrying out or this continuing to work in their individual lives as well as in their corporate lives because a letter is not written to an individual. A letter is written to an entire group of people. It is the life to live out, to carry out the salvation that has been graciously given to them by God. Continue in your obedience to Christ. More application-driven, set aside whatever is hindering your obedience and run the race. Whatever squabbles that you have, Philippians, set them aside. Whatever disagreements or disunity is among you, set that aside. Get back to priority. Get back to your first love. Your obedience to Christ in reaction to the salvation that you have been given. Put that on display. And he says, do that with fear and trembling. There's a debate about what these words mean. Maybe we're talking about some Old Testament type of fear and trembling where like the Lord shows up on Mount Sinai and everyone's like, I ain't even going near the whole mountain. And God's like, oh... Because of your lack of faith, if you do come near the mountain, you're going to die. And they're like, that's super scary. Some people say, that's, that's what we're talking about here. Other people say it's a little bit softer than that. It's a little bit more reverence and awe. Either way, I think a broader context is maybe needed here, where it is, it is in a way that you work out your salvation in response of a salvation given to you graciously. It's not in a spirit of, of hubris and pride. But in a, in a spirit of fear and trembling or reverence and awe, and that is in a spirit of human vulnerability. A posture of humility, as Paul continues to build off of that example that Christ has provided us. So the, the command here is not at all what it first read. It's not at all a, it's up to you to flesh out or work out your own salvation. Good luck with that. It is a, remember your promise of future glory. As a result of that promise, there is work for you to do. You are to, you are to put on display your salvation that was graciously given to you through your obedience in Christ with a humble posture. That's the work that we do. It's not get dressed and go to the concert. It is put in this work. This work is for you as we work as partners with God. So what we've seen is that our works are not decisive in our salvation, but they are evidence of salvation. They are evidence of God's saving work in us. Now, just like just like the 15-year-old girl who doesn't have a driver's license, doesn't have a ticket to the concert, we got questions. I am to share in Christ's exaltation. I am to take part in that inheritance as it is my own. And, and Christ's obedience is, is wiping away my sinful disobedience. And, and I am to be looked at on the same level as, as a participation in the perfect life of Christ. Hold up. Your boy got some questions because I sound a little bit too good to be true. And what I've learned, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. I have some questions. How does this work? How do I know that's real? What What is to encourage me to put in the work, to put in that zealous work? Paul says, don't worry, fam, I got you. Verse 13, he says, for it is God who works in you. Any, most of the time, when you see the word for like that, you can replace it with the word because. So put in the work because God is at work in you. Now we're starting to build the power of the promise, right? The power that brings a promise to fruition and encourages us to actually do the work. And so he says, Paul immediately points to God's prior action in this exchange, right? Which is, which is how we are going to accomplish the command to work out our salvation, once we properly understood what that is. It is God who is working in, in them, in the Philippians, both individually and corporately. And it is the same God who has exalted Christ, and for whose glory the whole world will bend a knee and give glory to his Son for God's ultimate glory. That is the God who is already at work among us and in us. That, that is starting to build that encouragement. God empowers you to do the work. That is your encouragement. That is is learning that your dad or your mom is going to pick you up from the concert and that they already have a ticket, that they have put in work before you even found out what was going on and they are going to make it happen. That is your encouragement to know that your work is not in vain, that your work is not wasted. And Paul could have stopped there, but he goes on and he says, God, who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The verse gets a little bit thick at work. Work out your own salvation, right? And the verse gets real thick right here. Some of us may be a little bit uncomfortable because what Paul is saying to you is God is at work and he is in control of both your desire and and your ability to do the work that he has commanded you to do. And the first thing that comes to my mind, because any anytime you explain the rules of a game to me, the first thing for whatever reason that comes to my mind is, how can I find a loophole? How can I find a loophole? And, and what this seems is this has is kind, of, kind of opened up a loophole. Okay, so if God is in control of my desire to do his work and my ability to do his work, then cool, your boy's on the couch playing Xbox until God gives me the desire. And if he doesn't, not really my fault. He's in control. Not. And, and, we, and we sang a song about that right before I got up here, right? And I was like, the spirit works. and I, I had nothing to do with picking the songs, Right? And Paul, he is teaching us, and he's already taught us through Romans. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, where he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? It's the same logic here where before that, Paul is saying, you will never out grace. The more you sin, the more grace is going to be poured out on you. And it's the same logic of cool, then I'm going to go back to sinning and doing whatever I want because grace is just going to abound. And what Paul would come around and say is, if that's your reaction, if that's your line of thought, you have misunderstood the gospel. And it's the same thing here. If you hear that God is in control of your desire and God is in control of your ability, if, you're, if your conclusion from that is, cool, I, I am free to be passive. I think you've misunderstood the salvation. Maybe, maybe, maybe more than that, maybe you haven't experienced this gracious gift of salvation. God is not putting these things in, plur- in place and going to work on your behalf so that you can be passive and not do anything, but so that you can be encouraged and that you can work zealously. So, so God teaches us that, that, that his sovereign power, because this is the statement about the sovereignty of God and his control over all things, God, is, God teaches us that his sovereign power in us, he uses his sovereign power in us as, as an incentive for us to get to work, not as an excuse for our passivity. And what Paul wants to remind us, and what Paul wants to remind the Philippians here uh, in, the, in the church is, listen, God's affecting work around you is, is an encouragement that God is on the side of his people and God is already working and God has invited you into his work. Our response to that of fear and trembling, of humility, of Christ's example is to work as hard as we can. Obedience requires both the will and the ability, and God is saying, i got a hold of both of them. Because if we're willing but not able, we are useless. If we are able but not willing, that doesn't work either. No neighborhoods are changed. No nations are changed. No one comes to know Jesus if that's the way this thing falls out. But there's, the, there's our powerhouse, Right? We, we've, we have fully replaced our teenager wanting to go to a concert where, where the promise is humble yourself, empty yourself, suffer for the sake of of Christ. Do this in unity because Jesus has already emptied himself for you. He has already taken the form of a man, a servant. He has already died. He has already been risen again. And, and, and what flows from that is a promise, a lofty promise of future glory, of, of future exaltation, of oneness with Christ, a unity with him. And so this lofty promise... Out of this lofty promise, it is is get to work. Work this out. Flesh this out. Carry this out. Put on display the salvation that you have been graciously given. Do this with a posture of humility. And don't worry about the fallout because God's got you. God has gone before you as he always has. He is in you, working your will, regenerating you, renewing your mind, bringing about repentance from the Holy Spirit. He is in there and he is changing your desires. He is forming your heart. He is giving you ability. He is is allowing you to invest your talents and get a return on them. And he is building up in you the ability to carry out the work. We have the promise. We have our part in it. And we have the power to carry it out. That's what it is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In that is an aspect of that's scary. What is God going to ask of us? Is he going to ask me to move out of Sulphur? Out of Louisiana? Out of the country? Is God going to ask me to sacrifice my job? Is He going to ask me to sacrifice my comforts? That one's a definite yes. He will ask you to sacrifice your comforts. What is He going to ask me to do? Do we believe this? Just like a few weeks ago, do we believe that Jesus is better than any any suffering that can come our way? Do we believe that? Because our lives are going to start to look different if, if we do. Do we we believe that we can truly follow Jesus all the way to death as he has already led that example out? Can I humble myself that much? I don't know. Pride is a big issue for me. Spend any time around me, you'll see it. It comes out fast and ugly. I fought it my whole life. But what this verse says is those sins that are keeping you from believing these truths in Scripture, those sins that have maybe carried Characterized you your whole life for me, right? That's pride. That's my addiction to being, to being comfort and, and, and my selfishness with my time. I don't know what that is for you. I'm just trying to be, you know, transparent for me. What this text tells me is I can get to work. I can fight. I can kill these things, not because I'm awesome, but because God has already laid away to the death of all my sins, the death of all my sins on the cross. Do you believe that? The sulfur community believe that? Are our neighborhoods looking different as an outflow as we all corporately put our salvation on display? As we work zealously for the Lord because He works powerfully in us? What I would encourage us to do as a a result of this text is get to work. Not because you're awesome but because God is powerful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, Lord, and we are thankful for the work that you have already done. Lord, we're thankful for the power that you give in us that that can encourage us to get out there and do the work, your sovereignty, to know that our work is not in vain. Lord, you are in control through the happiest parts of our life and and, and also through through the parts of our life with the most despair. You were on your throne. You were ruling. You were reigning. You were in control. And Lord, we know this because of what took place on the cross. We know this because during the, the, the most atrocious thing mankind has done, which is the slaying of your son, you were on your throne. Everything was under your control. And we know that through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, we have had our sins paid for. You will be glorified. And that this is good news to a sinner like me. And Lord, because of your work, I can get to work. I pray that you affect that in us. That you grow our willingness as we put ourselves out there. That you give us the abilities as we continue to humble ourselves just as Jesus did. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray these things through the power of your Holy Spirit because of the work your son has done. In your name we pray. Amen.